So welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. So once again, my name is Peter Liu, and I'm joined today by um, my co-host extraordinaire, Dr. Jason Silverman. How you doing, Peter? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm I'm excited for uh, I'm excited for this episode, but um, I'm also just excited to get out of the house a little bit. I got a brand new puppy who's tearing the place up, <sighs> yep. so um, which we love, but uh, it's it's been lively. So uh, it's nice to actually be sitting in my calm office, not being bit- bitten by anybody. Jason, I'm still a little disappointed you didn't go with my name recommendation of uh, Ti. I feel like Ti. T- Ti great. Ti would have been it's a great TI word. Would have been. It would have been. It would have been. Uh, it would have been a cute name. Uh, yep. Unfortunately, we had to. Uh, we had uh, two. My two boys had to <laughs> uh, weigh in on the name, so choice. so they had to be happy with with our choice, and and so we ultimately went with the name that they that they picked. Maybe we should actually talk a little bit about. Uh, some podcast business. Um, Just want to let our listeners know to hopefully follow us on Twitter um, Mm -hmm. at at Bowel Sounds. And because often uh, lately on Twitter, what we've been doing is uh, we've been announcing ahead of time who we're going to be interviewing and and asking our listeners if they have any questions for our upcoming guests, um, uh, specifically about the topic that we're going to be discussing. Uh, So we make sure that we get your questions answered in advance. But also, if you've listened to one of our episodes and and think, gosh, I'd like to follow up uh, a point that was made or ask a little bit more detail about uh, a special situation related to that topic, you can tweet at us with a hashtag AskBowSounds, and uh, we'll try and get your questions answered on a future episode. Yeah. I feel like there are many times when we're trying to come up with questions and we're writing them down and we're like, are these really, really the best questions to ask? Probably not. So we would love I to mean, hear the, some more input. We know, we know they're the questions we want answered, but maybe right. somebody sitting out there is is yelling at their car stereo on their way into work saying, why didn't you ask this? Yeah, exactly. And we want to make sure that we make you happy too. Right. Today's topic is one that I'm uh, actually really looking forward to. Rumination syndrome is a condition that keeps coming up again and again and again. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to do that. um, But but it is a really important topic in in pediatric GI. GI. We've all seen kids that... um, are sent to us for uh, quote unquote reflux or quote unquote vomiting. Who you know, once you take a history, it's pretty clear um, or fairly clear that it, it is actually rumination that's going on. Um, but it can be a really difficult to manage condition, and that's why I think it's so great that we have today uh, uh, not only one of your colleagues, a pediatric gastroenterologist with expertise in rumination syndrome, but also a GI psychologist with expertise in all of the techniques that can be used to really improve the the quality of life for these kids. Yeah. So I agree. I mean, I think I'm a little biased because I'm part of this team, but uh, I just feel like this is one of those conditions where we don't learn too much about it in medical school and even like training later on, but, you know, definitely can have a huge devastating impact on kids. It affects, especially when it's not diagnosed promptly. So, all right. So the, the first of our two guests is uh, Dr. Desali Yakub or Des Yakub. He is a pediatric GI doctor here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He's the medical director of our GI Motility Center. He's also an uh, associate professor of clinical pediatrics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. 
Uh, he's also a good friend and uh, has a lot of experience with uh, this specific topic. And uh, we all, uh, including Dr. Yaka, work very closely with our second guest, Dr. Ashley Kroon Van Deest, who is one of the uh, psychologists who really specializes in GI issues, specifically functional GI disorders and motility disorders. So she is part of the uh, not only the uh, psychiatry and behavioral health department, but also our GI motility team. So it was awesome to talk to two good friends who about a topic that we uh, all feel very passionate about. Doctors Jakob and Krumandis, thank you so much for joining me to uh, record this episode of Bowel Sounds on one of our joint favorite topics, rumination syndrome. So for our listeners who don't know you guys, how would you each describe yourself in only one sentence? How about Dr. Jakob, we'll start with you. Thank you, Jason and Peter, for having us and uh, allowing us to share our passion about rumination syndrome. So if I were to describe myself in one sentence, um, I would say I'm a proud Eritrean-American father of four. Okay, that's good. Nice. Didn't even mention rumination syndrome, which is why you're here. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's okay. okay. All right. It, it All doesn't right. have to be in his one sentence. It's right. okay. Fine. Fine. <laughs> All right, Dr. Kermendis. I was just going to say sarcastic, but... Okay, one word, even better. <laughs> Can you tell us about, uh, especially in the in the context of COVID uh, pandemic, everyone's homebound a lot more. We've been asking everyone, what are you doing for entertainment? Can you tell us about like a book, a podcast, a TV show, a movie that you've, uh, that you've read, listened to, or watched recently that you might recommend? Well, I will say in the midst of COVID, so I live out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And so I spent most of my time outside, which has been nice. Um, but I think like most recently, so I'm not, have never been super into like the Marvel Avengers movies, but I did actually watch them and I actually think they're really good. Yeah. So I think if anybody hasn't seen them and they're like on the fence about it, I would actually recommend it. I was pretty impressed. You are the last person to watch them all. So probably there's no one <laughs> left to recommend it to, but okay, good. That's a good one. No. So, um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because the most recent movie that I watched um, and that I highly recommend, I recommend that everybody watch is um, My Rainey's Black Bottom. With okay. Viola Davis and Chadwick. Uh, oh, Osman. yeah. On Netflix, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That is an excellent movie. It's based on a August Wilson uh, play uh, from 1982 and... It is an excellent movie and the acting is incredible. And it's obviously um, also directed by Denzel Washington. So it makes what? it even oh, I didn't know uh, that. more impressive. Wow. Super cool. Wow. He was nominated for check that out. Academy yeah. Awards and stuff. Yeah. they. I think um, uh, Chadwick uh, Boseman won um, at, a, at what was Maybe the Golden uh, Globes or something? No. Oh, <laughs> we'll look it up and yeah, we'll uh, cut it in. Yeah. No yeah. worries. Wow. That's good. Okay. Hey. So. Oscar nominated film and Avengers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's get serious. <laughs> all right. So first of all, rumination syndrome. So it may not be as well known as some of our other topics like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. So to start, Dr. Jakob, what is rumination syndrome? Like what are the diagnostic criteria for this disorder? So uh, rumination syndrome may not be very well known uh, and may not be the most common thing that we see, but 
it is something that we see and we encounter, and it's very important that we make the diagnosis early. So to define rumination syndrome is, a, is the act of repetitive regurgitation that is effortless and tends to happen soon after you had a meal or during a meal. And it's a functional GI disorder. And it's something that is going to be diagnosed based on the history. But, you know, uh, you asked about what is the criteria uh, for uh, rumination syndrome. So there are very specific criteria that were developed by uh, by the Rome Foundation and the Rome for criteria. Uh, so it's repeated uh, regurgitations and rechewing or expulsion of food that A, begins soon after ingestion of a meal, B, does not occur during sleep, two, not preceded by retching, and after appropriate evaluation, the symptoms cannot be fully explained by another medical condition, and an eating disorder has to be ruled out. Why did both of you decide to specialize in this, uh, in this particular disorder? What is it about this disorder that drew both of you to, to make this such a focus in your careers? I mean, I will fully admit that it was kind of an accident in some ways. <laughs> so I'm way back when I decided that I was going to go to grad school for psychology, I've always been interested in doing some sort of like research or clinical work with kids that have problems with eating. I think it's one of those things that like we all just eat every day and you're supposed to eat multiple times a day and it's supposed to be this easy thing, but it can go wrong in a lot of ways. And when it does, it's super stressful. Um, and it's something that super negatively impacts kids, but then also their families and it interrupts with school. And it's just, it's a major problem. So all of the training and research that I've done that sort of led me towards the path of rumination has had to do with kids that have difficulties with eating. So that obviously lends itself very well to the world of GI. Um, so for I've sure. been doing GI psychology related things for, I don't know, several years now. Um, and it happened to start running into kids that had rumination. And I honestly had never really heard of it. It's not something that people even trained about, like in clinical psychology, even though we're primarily the ones that are supposed to be treating it. Um, and so I just became more interested in it and took um, the opportunities to get advanced training. And then the position opened up here and here I am. Nice. That's a reasonable explanation. Yeah. So uh, for me, uh, obviously, I trained at Nationwide Children's Hospital and under um, Carlo Di Lorenzo, who um, uh, has been one of the uh, um, uh, gurus of functional GI disorders and including rumination syndrome. So in Nationwide Children's happens to be the only center that had uh, a dedicated center to treat these patients uh, with rumination syndrome. And we had patients coming from all over the country referred for the therapy. And so my interest obviously is in functional GI disorders and rumination being one of those uh, disorders um, has always fascinated me. And it is very gratifying to see these patients coming to see you after having had this problem for two years or longer. And he make the diagnosis and sometimes it's the first time that they are hearing the diagnosis and they're really understanding the diagnosis. And then with the interventions that we provide, you see them going from not keeping the smallest amount of food to going out and eating at one of the local restaurants. So uh, that's how I came to be interested in rumination syndrome. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit. Like you were saying, a lot of them have been misdiagnosed or they've had a delayed diagnosis where they've been told, you know, it's all in their head or they have an eating disorder. So I think, uh, right, there's a lot of satisfaction in finally helping them get better. So Dr. Kremendis, as someone who has spent countless hours uh, talking to these children and adolescents with rumination syndrome, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the patients that we see with rumination syndrome, like a little bit more than the diagnostic criteria? Like what are some of the more unique signs that would make or should make us a provider suspect that their symptoms are caused by rumination syndrome? Well, I think, I mean, in terms of the, what sets rumination apart from other types of vomiting is really the pattern of it. So that mm-hmm. like effortless nature that Dr. Yakov was mentioning. So uh, this part is a little bit harder to describe, but like seeing someone actually ruminate and how they eat something and it just comes right back up into their mouth. It, it doesn't look like what you think of when you think of vomiting, right? It's usually, it's not super forceful. There's no like retching or heaving that happens with it. And so when patients are mentioning that, or if you're like watching them eat and they just ate something and all of a sudden there's just like a little bit of food in their mouth, it's just like an instant, like, boom, you know, like this is rumination, right? And it happens during a meal or very soon afterwards. And so hearing those three things is just enough to almost immediately say like, wow, this sounds really a lot like rumination. We need to be considering this and putting it sort of towards the top of a differential. I mean, I think in terms of the population, I don't know if this is some of what you're getting at here. I mean, we do tend to see it a little bit more in females than in males. And we know that for whatever reason, it does tend to happen as most functional GI disorders do in patients that are a little bit more kind of characteristically type A, they're internally driven, super motivated, you know, top of their class, straight A students involved in a lot of activities and things like that. And I mean, I don't think any of us has a great explanation for why that is the case, but it does tend to lean that way. Not always, but I mean, those are things that are pretty common to hear. And going back a little bit, so you mentioned that you know, it's something that where you, if you see it, mm-hmm. you kind of know, right? Because it's so unique. Yep. So can you talk a bit more about like the utility of having someone you may suspect have it, like actually eat or, yep. you know, something like that? Yeah, I think honestly, in addition to just asking the questions, kind of getting the clinical history, watching them eat and seeing what happens is is huge. I th- there is a little bit of a downside to that because sometimes just having people like sitting and watching kids, like yeah. waiting for them to throw up and then it doesn't happen. And then they sort of feel like, Oh my gosh, now you think I'm making this up. But on, most of the time it, it happens, right? I mean, if, if they have rumination, it's severe enough. You watch the meat, you watch their food come up. I have had parents like start crying because I watched their kid, eat, and I watched their kid throw up and they're like, you have no idea how long I've been like just trying to get someone to watch this happen. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to do it. So it's for families, it's almost like a relief mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. them to have somebody who says, okay, eat in front of me because I want to see what happens. And then when they do it and you can say, that's rumination, that's exactly what it looks like. It's just, it's a huge moment for families. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's probably like a practical point that mm-hmm. any GI provider could do if they're suspecting that, to have them eat some snacks. Sure. If you're seeing a child or an adolescent in clinic who reports, you know, effortless postprandial regurgitation after meals, are there any tests that need to happen to rule out other causes or to confirm the diagnosis? So um, if you get a history of regurgitation effortless soon after or during a meal, and then you are asking about family history and other symptoms, you know, do you have any uh, dysphagia? Do you have any abdominal pain? And in terms of the location of the abdominal pain, uh, in the process, you're going to be uh, looking at their weight and nutritional well-being. So if you don't get any red flags um, that makes you think of, um, let's say, eosinophilic esophagitis, if I get a history um, of regurgitations that are effortless, but at the same time, this child is telling me that they have asthma, eczema, and food allergies. I'm not gonna not, um, you know, pursue eosinophilic esophagitis and rule that out. I'm gonna do an upper endoscopy in that patient. I think the history is really what um, 
guides the testing. And I always come up with a differential, even if I suspect and think this is consistent with rumination syndrome. But the one thing that I want to emphasize is even if I were to do testing, but I am suspecting or thinking this is rumination, I'm going to give them the diagnosis of rumination during that first visit. But right after I give them the diagnosis and explain what rumination is, I'm also going to say, as part of my workup or uh, as part of my process, I'm going to look into this one thing or that one thing. So if you have a classic history and no red flags that make you think of alternate uh, diagnoses, like you were saying, even though you might have your differential diagnosis, in that instance, are you doing no testing at all? Or are there certain investigations that you think are sort of a minimal baseline or, or are essential in your process? I'm perfectly comfortable to give them the diagnosis and not do any testing. If everything about the history and my physical exam um, is fitting the diagnosis of rumination syndrome. You know, there's been a lot of recent uh, literature looking at, you know, manometry findings of, that mm-hmm. may be consistent with rumination syndrome and categorizing different types of rumination syndrome. So in your opinion, what do you think is the role of esophageal or potentially antroduanal manometry in the evaluation and diagnosis of patients with rumination syndrome? So there are times when you have a patient or a family that is absolutely not convinced that this is rumination syndrome, even though as a provider, uh, you are convinced that this is rumination syndrome. Mm -hmm. So, and to be honest, if you're going to proceed with therapy, you have to get the patient and the family on board. And how do you do that? If you have a situation where your explanation and your years of experience and uh, work with this patient is not enough, is there a test that could clinch or that could demonstrate um, objectively that this is rumination syndrome to the family and the patient. So we find uh, either esophageal manometry or antroduinal manometry to be very helpful in that circumstance. When you do esophageal manometry or antroduinal manometry um, under direct observation, that's key word uh, right there. Um, And if you see simultaneous contractions that are uh, being picked up by every sensor whether it's in the esophagus or in the antroduodenal uh, uh, portion of the uh, GI tract. And uh, those simultaneous contractions are occurring at the time that they are regurgitating. That is consistent with what we call R waves, and that is diagnostic for rumination syndrome. And you can say, you see, these these are R waves. This our waves are standing for rumination, so therefore this is <laughs> rumination syndrome. And, you know, by... By that time, they will get on board yeah, and you right. could proceed with uh, the therapy. <laughs> uh, the advantage of esophageal manometry is that you could do that without having to put the kids through anesthesia, uh, without having to um, have them sit there for six hours. Um, it could be like a, a study that could be completed in half an hour to an hour. Um, and you also have that advantage of differentiating between primary and secondary rumination which doesn't really mean much when it comes to uh, therapy. Dr. Krumvandis could uh, go into that uh, further. But, you know, the difference is the R waves occur before or after the LES opens. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But I will do AD manometry if I'm suspecting uh, other motility issues like antrohypomotility or small bowel dysmotility or um, there are other things that 
uh, are not clear in the history, um, or if there is something that you want to have um, the ability to observe over a prolonged period of time. Right, right. And I think one thing just to add on to that, um, that rumination is not always occurring in isolation. That sometimes mm-hmm. it can be uh, an infectious trigger or an episode of gastroparesis or something else that's occurred that has then led to this persistent effortless regurgitation that is consistent with rumination. So, okay. So if what I'm hearing is, uh, so diagnosis or yeah. So diagnosis can be made on history exam. And in, in certain cases, maybe manometry can be helpful, but definitely is not needed for everybody. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's exactly the case. So if you're not at a motility center, you can't make the excuse that we don't do manometry. We can't diagnose it. Yeah. Everyone so, can diagnose see, it. Yeah. Everyone can diagnose it. Um, you, you just have to have a listening ear. Yeah. Yeah. For Dr. Krumendis, when you're giving the diagnosis, when you're describing the diagnosis of rumination syndrome to, to children and their families, how do you approach that? How do you explain this condition to, to these kids and these families? We really talk about rumination as it's a physical issue because it is. I mean, there's a physical mechanism that's sort of maintaining this process of sending food up after eating. Um, And I think that's really helpful for families and kids to understand so that they know that we're not telling them this is all in their head or that anxiety is causing their symptoms. Um, Because as Dr. Lou had mentioned earlier, a lot of times families, by the time they get to us, have either heard that message or sort of internalized that message along the way, even if it wasn't directly stated to them. So you know, we explain that rumination is something that's often triggered by some sort of illness, whether it's a viral illness or some sort of infection, or even sometimes major life stressors, moving, loss of close family members, things like that. But essentially what happens is there's something that assaults the GI tract and leads to a sensitivity within the nerves of the stomach specifically for rumination. And what that translates to is every time that someone with rumination eats or drinks or sometimes even takes medication, once that that content hits the stomach, those nerves essentially start this process of rumination because it interprets that food or fluid or whatever it is as something bad that needs to get out of the stomach. And the fastest way to get out is to send it right back up. So I explained to kids that when you're eating or drinking things, your stomach actually has to kind of expand or open up a little bit to make space for that food. And it's supposed to stay open and nice and relaxed until it digests and kind of moves on into the lower part of the GI tract. We know that in rumination, that part works just fine. The problem is that when those, once those nerves start to kind of pick up on that problem and say like, whoop, there's something bad in here, that's what triggers the process of the abdominal wall muscles. So the muscles that are just on the outside of the stomach to actually tighten. And when those muscles tighten, they start to put pressure on the stomach. So if the stomach is supposed to be nice and open and relaxed, but we have muscles on the outside that are pushing on it, it eventually causes the stomach to contract or squeeze, or sometimes we'll describe it as a tick. And when that squeeze happens is really when the food actually comes up in that sort of effortless fashion. And it certainly for most people happens multiple times in a row. And that's just repeated contractions or squeeze of the stomach. And so in describing that to kids and families, a lot of times they're like, whoa, I never thought about that or nobody explained it to me that way. And it helps them to be able to at least make a connection physically with kind of what's going on in their stomach that helps them understand why is my food coming up like this when I'm not doing anything to cause this to happen. Okay. That's really helpful to hear because I think a lot of, um, as you mentioned, a lot of families have, uh, like you said, internalized whether or not it's been said explicitly or not. They've sort of internalized the, this is in your head or this is um, sort of a 
an invented problem. It's not a physical ailment. And, and it's nice to hear that you, you ground it in f- very physical terms about what their bodies are doing. One, one small follow-up, um, and this is maybe for a lot of people that work in community practice or maybe in, um, maybe in some other academic centers, just you know, in terms of how they structure their clinic. How long is that conversation typically I think, I mean, in terms of just describing to someone what rumination is, the way I just explained it to you is the same as if you were a parent that I would have said it to you. So, I mean, I can go through sort of my rumination spiel, if you will, in 15 minutes. Uh, I mean, that being said, this is something that I do every day of the week. So I recognize that it would probably take a little bit more time. And certainly, you know, some families have a lot of questions where others really don't. So it's variable. When we're meeting patients for the first time and going through their whole story, like getting actually gathering the clinical history, hearing them out, and then presenting them with this is rumination syndrome, giving them the explanation, I think that part definitely takes more time. And I think on average, we probably spend somewhere between maybe 60 to 90 minutes with families for that initial sort of walkthrough of all of that from like start to finish. And it depends on the person. Some it of does us take a yeah. lot longer. Well, others. and I mean, so. Uh, well, <laughs> But it's some of it too is their story too. You know, I mean, some of them, when we say like, tell us the clinical history, they literally pull out these like binders that are inches thick and they'll tell you on this date, I was admitted to the hospital and this is the date that this happened. And so, you know, we sit and listen because there's something that's beneficial for those families to feel heard Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, in that story. And so even though we don't necessarily need to hear all those specific like nuanced details, the fact that they're able to say it and we sit there and listen and then we say, we're so confident this is rumination based on everything you told us that it just helps to reinforce their buy-in to the diagnosis. So, yeah. Yeah. It's tough because I don't know. I'm obviously, it's not like feasible for every single person in the regular GI clinic. But um, but yeah, I feel like so much of it is listening to them because they've been a lot of times passed around from different people through, you know, uh, with different doctors. I think for everybody, you know, if you know that's the diagnosis, you can also schedule another appointment and kind of go through things on a, you know, at a separate time, maybe, you know. Um, if it doesn't work to have that time during that clinic where you're like seeing them for the first time, let's say the GI doctor has made the diagnosis. How would you talk through, um, the treatment of rumination syndrome, especially for someone who may not have easy access to a GI psychologist? If you have the understanding of what rumination syndrome is and you truly buy into the, uh, uh, ability to make a diagnosis based on the history and the criteria, then you're going to give the diagnosis. And that is actually the first step into the journey of therapy. The minute that they hear this is what it is and this is why it's happening, um, uh, you have accomplished a lot. And following that, you have to give them the permission to re-swallow what comes up. Yeah. That accomplishes a lot. If they could uh, successfully re-swallow every regurgitant um, and keep it down, that actually leads to um, getting the stomach not to regurgitate. Mm-hmm. It's a habit reversal. You know, the re-swallowing part is, seems so simple, but it's like a huge part of the treatment, right? Because then yep. you, if they can successfully re-swallow everything that they ruminate, then they, you eliminate all the nutritional concerns that go along with rumination syndrome. Well, I think, I mean, as you mentioned, I think the approach to rumination is sort of like a habit reversal. I mean, if you very similar to a neurological tick, right? And sometimes when I talk to patients and families, I will say like rumination really is a neuromuscular issue, right? So we have this brain gut connection that has to do with the muscles on the outside of the stomach and the nerves within the stomach. So, I mean, that it's not 
it's not an accurate or, or incorrect to sort of equate it to an actual tick in that way. So the way that we treat it is by teaching the teaching the patient to do what we call incompatible behaviors or or things that they can do that's the complete opposite of what their body is physically trying to cause to happen. So because the nerves in the stomach are programmed at this point when we know rumination is set in to think essentially that food has to come back up, the act of re-swallowing and doing so repeatedly, getting really good at consistently keeping stuff down in the stomach, it's basically overriding that system, right? And it's teaching those nerves, nope, this stuff is good. It needs to stay down in here. Um, I will say that it's, I mean, most people, if they've never heard that as part of the treatment, I mean, this is even just me talking to providers, they're very shocked by hearing that. Um, some kids just already re-swallow anyway, like that's just what they've done. And we know that in those circumstances, those kids always have more mild symptoms, right? And they very rarely do require tube feeds. They don't have repeated hospitalizations and they're, they just don't have the same severity or frequency of their rumination episodes. Um, and then, in, you know, in the context of treatment, as soon as we get kids to start re-swallowing, I really emphasize to them a couple of things. One is that they can re-swallow before food gets into their mouth. So most patients, especially those that are kind of preteen and the more adolescent, they get some sort of warning sign when rumination is about to happen, whether it's a pressure in their stomach area or they can actually feel food as it's like coming up in their throat. So I always suggest to them when you get those warning signs, just go ahead and swallow. You know, we almost always have enough saliva in our mouth that you can at least swallow once and that will actually effectively push food back down into your stomach. So I really encourage that. Um, and then my second point to the to that when I'm talking to patients is, you know what, you're already retasting your food anyway. So even if it does come up into your mouth, you're already tasting it. So if right now, if you just start swallowing it back down, and it actually helps so that your food comes up less. It's gross now, but it helps a lot in the long run. And for a lot of patients, when they're doing more intensive treatments and we're watching them actually eat meals multiple times a day over the course of like three to five days, there's a significant decrease in the number of times that their food even comes up, even from one meal to the next over the course of that short span of time. And so once patients start doing it and you get their buy-in, then they're way more successful in doing it. So it's, it's huge and it helps to reset that sort of miscommunication or misfire with the nerves in the stomach. Um, I will add that the diaphragmatic breathing has to go along with the re-swallowing. So I think a lot, most people have at least heard of diaphragmatic breathing in the context of rumination if they're familiar with it. I think one of the biggest challenges is patients not being told why they should do diaphragmatic breathing, not being told when to use it correctly. So it's, it's very common for kids to get here. And when we say, yep, diaphragmatic breathing is part of treatment, they're already kind of cringing like, but someone else told me to do that and it didn't work and I don't understand this. So when we talk about diaphragmatic breathing, what we do is explain that what that does is it actually stretches out and relaxes those abdominal wall muscles. So those are the muscles that are tightening and putting the pressure on the stomach that causes that contraction to happen. If those muscles aren't tightening, your stomach is not just going to randomly start squeezing all the time and sending your food back up. And so being able to give that explanation to patients and have them understand like physically, that's one of these, those incompatible behaviors, right? Just like re-swallowing is incompatible with food coming out. Doing diaphragmatic breathing is incompatible with those muscles being super tight and tense. Um, the way that we instruct diaphragmatic breathing is doing it immediately before you start eating. So I, I say, let's say you're about to eat a cheeseburger. It's right in front of you. I want you to do your breathing right before you take that first bite. Not 10 minutes before, not 30 minutes before. That's not really going to make a huge difference. Um, if they start to get any of those warning signs, I want them to do it then. Um, and then 100% of the time, if you're actively re-swallowing food, as soon as you re-swallow something, you have to do that diaphragmatic breathing. Because if you don't, what happens is the food will go back down in your stomach, but we know those muscles are still tight and we've done nothing to relax them. So regurgitation is just going to happen repeatedly. 
And most of the time patients will say, well, I re-swallowed, but then it just comes back up and it's more forceful or there's more that comes up with it. And then eventually I just spit it out. And that's because re-swallowing alone is just not sufficient. So they have to re-swallow and combine that with a diaphragmatic breathing to really actually kind of master the issue. And I think as Dr. Jakob had mentioned, I mean, the only way for that to be successful is to start with small amounts. There's no way that you can have a kid sit down and eat a normal sized meal right from the get go and have them be successful with re-swallowing and doing diaphragmatic breathing. So when we practice, we usually start with, I mean, sometimes it's just a single Cheerio or maybe a handful of cereal, but just a small amount. So they learn what they need to do and they're successful with it. Is there a duration? So for that pre first bite uh, approach or after, after they've re-swallowed, how long do you want these kids to be doing their diaphragmatic breathing for? So when they're doing it like immediately before and immediately after meals, just because of that's the instruction to do, I suggest that they do five to 10 total of those breaths, not five to 10 minutes. That's way too long. And kids, I mean, I don't know if any of you have done this, but most of your smart watches or devices have like the breathing apps or something. And if you do them, it sets you up to do it for like a full 60 seconds. It feels like an eternity. (laughs) And so if you're 13 years old and trying to do this, it's probably going to feel even longer than it does for an adult. So I, I just encourage five to 10. It is, it's very arbitrary, but I mean, if they do it just once, that's not going to be helpful. Or, you know, if they're actively having episodes of regurgitation, food's coming up, they're swallowing it back down. They're going to need to do that breathing until their food stops coming up. And so that's when it's a little bit more variable but kids get really good at doing it. I mean, if they follow the instructions, it's it, it's very rare that I have to sit with a kid that has to do diaphragmatic breathing and re-swallowing for like five minutes straight um, after eating a meal. That's really helpful. And and so we've talked about re-swallowing and diaphragmatic breathing. Could you talk a little bit about some of the other therapeutic uh, options that you put into play when when you're helping out with these kids? We do also talk a lot about like posture while eating and pace while eating. So I have definitely worked with kids where they eat a lot of food really fast. And if we can slow them down and get them to eat less food, that's enough that they stop ruminating. So, I mean, just little things like that, making sure they're not taking really big bites, making sure they're actually chewing their food. I mean, there's times that I've, I mean, quite literally had to like put my hands up and be like, whoa, slow that down. Or let's try and chew that a little bit better before we swallow it. Um, the posture while eating is, I mean, it's a little bit less of an issue, but sometimes kids, if they have super like slouchy lean forward posture, kind of bent over the table the entire time they're eating, they're actually without knowing it already kind of compressing their stomach and making it easier for rumination to happen. So that's sort of why we talk about the posture while eating a little bit to try and I don't, I'm, I don't want you to think like sit straight up, like, you know, you're playing an instrument in the band. I mean, but even just, I'm sometimes taking breaks and relaxing back in the seat to kind of let your abdominal wall muscles relax a little bit and let your stomach relax. And I mean, we also talk some about separating food and fluids. So, you know, if, if you're eating a decent amount of food and then you pick up eight ounces of fluid and drink it in a pretty short amount of time, that usually causes problems for most people with rumination. So most of the time when we get started, we're really limiting liquids to maybe even just like two to four ounces during a meal And then having them work on slowly like sipping fluids kind of in between meals to make sure they stay hydrated, but do it in a way that helps them keep their food down. For patients who, let's say they've tried some of those things, or at least they were told to try that and they're working on it at home, but they're still struggling. Maybe they're needing tube feeding, that kind of thing. Like what are, are there, what are the more intensive treatment options that are available? Um, I mean, I can tell you about the ones that we have here. So, I mean, there, there's not a lot of options outside of nationwide. I mean, I know of a couple of other children's hospitals that I've talked to that 
have tried to put together some like more intensive, like inpatient and somewhat more intensive outpatient approaches. And I, I mean, I honestly don't know like where they're at in like the development of those, those programs. Um, for the longest time here, we had an inpatient program where patients would actually come and be admitted to the hospital for a planned two week stay. Um, and while they were here, they would have like three to four meals with a psychologist during the day to practice all of these strategies. Um, which I mean, in, in general, I, I personally feel that for patients to be successful with this, they actually need someone who's going to sit and eat with them and walk them through the steps when it's happening. Because we meet a lot of patients who, you know, they're maybe meeting with a psychologist and they're taught diaphragmatic breathing and someone gives, gives them the strategies, like how I've described to all of you, um, without actually doing it with them. And a lot of kids really need the on the ground. This is how we do this in the moment to really be successful with it. Um, and then the second piece of that is it's the consistency, right? Like they have as soon as you teach it to them, they have to do it every time they eat. What we primarily do now, a little bit less of the inpatient, because we found that we can do even shorter treatment stays that are um, actually a lot easier for patients and families if they come and do what we call our intensive outpatient treatment approach. So what we'll do is we'll schedule kids to come here for about three to five days, and they still get the three meals a day, the practices with psychology. And so we sit with them with food. We provide all the education, a lot of the conversation and language that we've talked about here in this discussion today is what is reflected to patients and families to start. And then it's just repeating the meals. We do a breakfast meal. We practice the strategies. They leave, go do whatever they want. Sometimes schoolwork, sometimes not. Um, And then they come back and we do lunch and we do the same thing over again. They leave, they come back, we do snack. And so we do those trials and each evening they go with their families and they eat at a restaurant or wherever they're staying and so they also have the opportunity to kind of practice this stuff on their own every day. And then they come back the next day and we say, hey, how did it go? So if it's challenging, they have a little bit of a better idea of what this is going to look like at home, like real world. And then we can problem solve around it to make things better. And we spend the week talking about how do you do this when you go home? You know, what does this look like when you go back to school or when you're eating with your friends or, you know, when you're at a restaurant and we have, you know, plans and places as best as we can to help them be successful with that stuff when they go home. The data that we have on it shows that it's pretty effective. The kids do really well. Um, Even in that short three to five day time span, we have kids that came here being reliant on NJ tubes or GJ tubes for nutrition, and they can essentially not need those things even by the end of a week's worth of time. So I know there's not a ton of data on this yet, um, but there's one study in adults that showed that baclofen can be uh, helpful for decreasing rumination frequency. What are your guys' thoughts about that? It's a surprise question. No, I think that's actually a very good question because uh, we know baclofen helps, uh, at least from our experience, but I never bring that up as the primary treatment in these patients because if you were to make the diagnosis and say, I'm going to start you on baclofen and uh, you don't have to do anything else, then you're setting them up for failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to focus on all the things that were just discussed by Dr. Krumvandist and they have to make it clear that they have to do the work. They have to be right. motivated to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And the baclofen could come in and uh, be that additional help. Yeah. And it's not, like, even though we can see pretty quick improvement in some of the intensive programs, mm-hmm. it's not like a light switch. It's still like, it's like, I oftentimes will tell them it's like working out, you know, or practicing a sport or something, you know, it takes weeks, months, sometimes yeah, years to really get it completely under control. It's a rehabilitation right. process. Right. I mean, you have to rehabilitate um, your GI track and get it back to where it used to be, where yeah. used to be excited to get food in and keep it inside and digest it and get it moving down our favorite organ, the colon. Wow. Uh, 
you guys are like the rumination people. I was going to say, we're talking about rumination. What are you doing here? (laughs) All right, I'm definitely going to get cut out. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of, what are the outcomes that you see in children and adolescents with rumination syndrome? And do you see differences in different populations, either because of age or sex? As far as I'm aware, there's only one study that actually followed any patients after treatment that was done here that you guys did. And it was something like, I think on average, it was about two to three years after patients had been here and did the inpatient treatment program. And from what I recall, I think, I mean, definitely the majority of patients had significant improvement in symptoms left here without needing tube feeds. I think there were a couple that ended up needing to go back on tube feeds. And I think closer to like 75% of patients actually did report at least a recurrence of symptoms after a period of resolution or, you know, if they were one of the patients that maybe never completely got rid of rumination, but it was just well controlled, they at least had an increase in symptoms at some point. And most of the time that was triggered by some sort of virus. I think a lot of times it was a GI related virus. So, yeah, I mean, that from what we know, I think most people, we know short term that most people do well. From what we see when they're here for treatment, regardless of sort of which level of treatment, whether it's inpatient or that intensive outpatient, that we see pretty significant improvement to the point where most patients are able to eat and drink and sustain nutrition, hydration, orally, keeping down the majority of what they take in and not requiring tube feeds or anything like that. And quality of life improves. A lot of the kids can go back to school and sports and kind of go back to living and functioning relatively normally. So short term, we know that's the case. Long term, I think that's the only study that we really have, because unfortunately, the majority of the patients that we treat in our more intensive programming here, they're coming here from not from Ohio. And so we actually don't follow up with them. They go back home to California and Texas and Alaska or wherever they live, and they just continue to be followed by their local teams. And so we don't we don't have that data yet. We're in the process of creating a rumination registry where we're hoping to actually long-term track that thing, those sort of outcomes, so that we can get that data and then actually put it out there. But of course, it takes time to put the registry together, but then also to track people long enough term to answer those questions. I was just going to add, you know, how we were talking about some of these patients may have recurrence of their uh, rumination. Uh, The one thing that we always remind them at discharge or if they were to call back saying that this is happening again is to go back to what they did Mm -hmm. uh, at the initial encounter or the initial therapy. It may be one thing just to clarify. So when I mean, we're talking about these outcomes and talking about how well kids do, you know, at the end of the week, it's not like their rumination is gone and they go home and don't ever have to think about this again. At the end of the week, they're doing really well at controlling their symptoms and they have to go home and continue to control their symptoms. So, I mean, that's, and we talk to patients and families about this at the beginning of the week, you know, because we don't want anybody to think, okay, by Friday, I'm going to be better and this is totally gone and I don't ever have to do this diaphragmatic breathing thing ever again. Um, that's, that's just not realistic. And, and so in terms of timeline, because I get asked this a lot, like how long will I have to keep using these skills? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, with some of the kids that have actually had more severe symptoms, but have been local enough that like we are their follow-up team. We've had kids that like two months after doing a short stint of intensive treatment here, they're not actively doing diaphragmatic breathing and they're back to eating normally and they're not having any issues with rumination. At the same time, we've worked with kids that six months later are still actively having to do diaphragmatic breathing at every meal and eat smaller amounts because that's the only way that they can really control their symptoms. So it's pretty variable in terms of what that looks like. We have no way of predicting who goes down which pathway and what that looks like, which of course families always want to know the answer and our answer is super ambiguous, but I mean, that's as transparent as we can be with them on that, that point. You know, so stepping back a little bit away from rumination syndrome. So for both of you guys, uh, looking back on your career thus far, 
What's been the most valuable advice you've received? And what advice do you have for our listeners, especially trainees, uh, junior faculty? You know, the advice um, to kind of be proactive and the advice that you yourself are the driver of your career. You can't really expect anyone else to put together your career for you. Um, it may not have been said in that very exact kind of way, but you kind of get that uh, in conversations, in observations of uh, people. So you really have to be, um, I mean, my advice for uh, people who are just starting their career is to really be the drivers of their career. And when they see an opportunity um, to really um, take that opportunity and own it. Mine would be never work harder than your patients. So, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much this applies in your physician world, but at least in the psychology world, if we're chasing down patients and working really hard to try and convince them that they should participate in treatment or believe in a diagnosis, they're not ready for treatment. Mm-hmm. And so if that's, if you find yourself in that position, and I think this makes a lot of sense for rumination patients, as we've talked about, because I mean, not everybody's going to buy into that diagnosis. There's only so much that you can do. You can provide the education, you can give them the evidence or, you know, however you want to describe that to say like that this really is what's going on. This is what we think the treatment is. Cause I think oftentimes like collectively as care teams, we spend time spinning our wheels for patients that don't take their medicine all the time, or they don't want to go to their therapies or they don't want to do the things you suggest for them, but you feel like some sense of personal responsibility over how do I help this kid get better? Um, you can't take ownership for someone else, just not adhering to treatment or not following your treatment recommendations. So don't take it personally, but also don't continue to work super hard for somebody who's not willing to work hard for themselves. That's good. And it can be hard to say that Mm -hmm. sometimes, but honestly, I mean, there have been multiple times when taking that like polite, but direct approach and just saying, you've got to be bought in, you know, you're not convinced of the diagnosis that tells us that we're just not ready for treatment. Go home, think about it. If you change your mind, let us know. And we have had some patients that have come back to us Mm -hmm. and then participated in treatment and and done well. I mean, on the flip side of that, when we have been working super hard and trying to force something for a patient that just wasn't into it, it does not go well. Um, And it doesn't go well for us and it doesn't go well for patients or families. And then they are, because they didn't give it their all, they're going to say, I told you so. This didn't work. Your treatment didn't help. Right. And then it just reinforces their belief that something else is going on. They continue to chase multiple opinions and other testing and things like that. So, I mean, it's a challenging dynamic and it, it, we're helpers. I mean, our job is to try and help people feel better. So it feels not great for us to sometimes just have to say, I've, I've done the best I can do. Now it's really up to you. But sometimes that is the best thing that we can do. Yeah. I feel like especially junior faculty trainees, like in the very beginning, you just feel so much stress and pressure. Cause you're like, I'm responsible for this patient. I should be the one that fixes them. Yep. But you know, you quickly learn, no, you don't have control over everything. Yeah. And you have to devote your energy to where it's actually gonna make a difference. That's great. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. That was an awesome episode. I know that everyone's going to really benefit from the hearing your wisdom on this topic. And uh, hopefully we'll have you guys back soon. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Uh, that was a great discussion. Once again, thank you to Dr. Jakob and Dr. Krimandis for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I think, you know, for me, the biggest take home point that hopefully everyone got through the interview is uh, even the rumination syndrome um, is something that maybe 
isn't treated traditionally like other GI disorders, potentially with medications and the treatment is primarily behavioral. But, you know, I feel like Dr. Kriemandist in particular really laid out exactly the concrete practical steps that we need to know to start treatment, even without a GI psychologist. So hopefully that was yeah. helpful. And uh, yeah. So for all of our listeners, again, you know, hopefully you guys already do this, but if you don't already follow us on social media, you can follow us at at Sounds on Twitter or Instagram. You can follow us at at Pediatric GI Podcast on Facebook uh, for all the latest news, updates, uh, again, questions uh, for upcoming episodes or hashtag ask bow sounds for any questions you want answered about previous episodes um and if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast it would really help us if you uh left a uh, left a review on apple podcasts it really helps other people to find our uh find our show and also tell somebody you know we've got new trainees uh in programs who may not know that we actually have a, a dedicated pediatric GI podcast for them to be listening to. So for sure, uh, let them know. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.